I'd imagine that at some point in your life you've had the wonderful opportunity of going into one of those caves, you know, where you can take a cave tour, which is really a good idea, like when it's summer, you know, it's 110 degrees. For those of you who are new to Texas, it's going to get warm. You want to enjoy this week and probably next week and after that, it's going to be more like Death Valley, okay? But anyway, you want to take one of these cave tours, it's pretty cool. They got... They have lights now strung there, and they have rails and stuff. I mean, you're not going to hurt yourself, okay? This isn't spelunking or anything like that. You're just going to go down. You take this nice tour. got this nice little tour guide, but it's pretty cool down there. You're looking at the stalagmites and stalactites, and and then at some point, your guide's telling you, now, we're going to turn all the lights off so you can experience utter darkness, okay? And if you're a parent, that's your clue to find your kids, all right? You know, and so I'm trying to hurt all my floor, you know, and we're, we're sitting there, and then and they do. They turn the lights off. And, I mean, it is utter darkness. They, they say, put your hand in front of your face. You literally cannot see that hand. And it's right there because it is completely pitch black. They tell you, this is what total blindness is like. Just, you absolutely, it's just totally dark. Well, today, we're going to find out what spiritual blindness looks like. We're going to find out what does it look like to be completely unseen that which is in front of you. This passage we're coming to in Matthew chapter 20, beginning in verse 29 uh, through 21:17, really is some very interesting paradoxes. Because we're going to meet some people who are blind, but they actually see. And we're going to also meet some folks that see things that very few people have ever seen. And they're completely blind and oblivious to what's in front of them. You see, when it comes to Jesus, it is absolutely essential that you see him for who he really is. Because when you see Jesus for who he really is, not some caricature put up together in some sort of magazine or on some sort of TV show that will be hitting here in the next couple of weeks, but to see Jesus for who he really is, that changes everything in this life and in the life to come. Who really is Jesus? Well, let me introduce to you to a couple of blind men who see. In Matthew chapter 20, verse 29, as they were leaving Jericho, a large crowd followed him. Let me just tell you what's going on here. Jesus is making his way to Jerusalem. He is going to celebrate the Passover, and with him there would be throngs of thousands and thousands of Jews because there was estimated at this time about two million Jews would congregate in Jerusalem for Passover. And what the Jews would do, because they didn't want to go through Samaria because they considered that forsaken land with forsaken people, they'd go around it. So they'd go to the other side of the Jordan River, they'd go down the land of Perea, they'd cut across the river back into Jericho, and they'd be making their way, and there'd literally be thousands of people that'd be traveling along this road. Now with Jesus, and the miracles that he's doing here, all of a sudden, people will just be like, whoa, this prophet that we keep hearing about, this, this Jesus, some say he's the Messiah, he's in our midst. Whoa, we're... And so Jesus would be traveling with his men. And as they're going, they're leaving Jericho, a large crowd is following them. You've got to just feel the feverish pitch, the people wanting to see him, to touch him. I mean, you see it like when you see a celebrity, you know, folks are like, oh, I want to see the president. Or I want to see this. And people just get in line. They'll wait. They'll run. Well, that's what's happening here. And they're making their way. And in verse 30, there are two blind men that are sitting by the road, hearing that Jesus was passing by. And they cried out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, blindness. Blindness was very common in biblical times. Uh, many of them were born blind or became blind shortly after birth. 
And just like in third world countries today, there's blindness is, is a serious disease and affects a lot of people. And if you were blind or if you had any physical limitation that prevented you from working, you were reduced to begging. There was nothing else you could do. And so if, if you're begging, that's your only means of receiving any sort of bread, any sort of money to buy things that you need. Where are you going to go? You're going to go where the people are. And so that's why they would go and they would congregate alongside the roads and they would be there and they'd literally they have their hand out and they would just be asking for some, somebody to take care of them. Now, it's really interesting. The Bible in Leviticus chapter 19, verse 14, the law says, I want you to take care of the blind people because this is reverence to me. That's what God said. But blindness had developed like a stigma to it. They actually believed that many of the people in, in the time of the New Testament believed that blindness was a curse because of sin. Either you sinned or your parents sinned. You actually see this in John chapter 9. Remember, the apostles, the disciples following Jesus, they found this guy who was blind from birth. Remember? And they said, whoa, Jesus, see that guy right there? He's blind. Hey, who sinned? Did he or his parents? Remember? that? You see, why are they saying that? Because that's what they believed. Well, this, these two blind men, they actually hear that Jesus, if you were blind, let me assure you, word got out that Jesus had the ability to heal blind people and lame and those who couldn't hear. And that's absolutely what you wanted and needed. I mean, but that it never happened. It never happened until Jesus. Because it's really interesting, in all of Jewish history, throughout the entire Old Testament, there is not a single occasion where a blind person was made to be able to see. Because they believed This was a miracle reserved for the Messiah, the promised one, the one who would take away our sins, this promised son of David. Remember all the way back in 2 Samuel chapter 7, God said, I'm going to give you a son, David, who will reign forever. And Isaiah speaks that this son of David has the ability to actually make blind people see. And so that's why they're calling out son of David. This was a messianic title. You only said son of David if you were calling out to one you truly believed was God's savior, the Messiah. And so they're crying out, Lord, have mercy on us, son of David. Well, look at verse 31. The crowd, the crowd sternly told them to be quiet. Okay, and that's the Bible's way of probably just making that real nice. I'm sure it was a lot harsher than just quiet down now. Okay, okay. They probably were insulted, maybe kicked, pushed out of the way. Because after all, they deserved it, right? They're sinners. That's why they can't see. So the crowd yells at them, chews them out, kicks them out of the way, tells them, be quiet in a very stern manner. But they would not be silent. See verse 31? But they cried out all the more, Lord, son of David, have mercy on us, please. Please, you're the Messiah. You alone can do this. This is a miracle that Messiah does. But you have mercy on us. We, we simply cannot see. And so Jesus, verse 32, Jesus cares. And Jesus first stopped and called them and said, what do you want me to do? And they said, Lord, we want our eyes to be opened and moved with compassion. You see that? Do you know what moves the heart of God? His love. It is his love that moves Christ to humanity. It is the love of Jesus that moves him to those who are most needy. As they cry out to him in the midst of his, their brokenness, the pain of their life. Lord, please have mercy on us. We want our eyes to be opened and moved with compassion. Jesus 
touch their eyes. Couldn't you see it? The whole crowd just gathers around because Jesus is stopped. These blind men that have been kicked out of the way, now Jesus is in front of them. And he literally, he touches their eyes. And notice, and immediately, they regained their sight and followed him. Think of it. Imagine if you were those blind guys. No surgery, no bandages. No, well, you have to wait 20 days and we'll see what happens here. Instantly, boom, sight. Whoa. All of a sudden, you see all the people that are around you. You've heard them, but now you see them. You see the hills of Moab. Perhaps you see the roses from the city of Jericho. But the very first thing these blind men see is the face of love, the face of Jesus. And when they see him, when they regain their sight, immediately they followed him. Friends, let me tell you something. If you have been touched by the living God, he has reached into your pain He has resolved your sin issues by actually paying for the penalty for sin in his own body. If your life has been touched by Christ, you are called to follow him, to know the joy of being in the one who loves you with compassion. And that's what these men do. They're like, we are going with you. It's interesting, when Jesus does this, this is an instant automatic proof of his messiahship. You see, Jesus is the true son of David. And furthermore, when Jesus does miracles like this, this is a preview of what's going to happen in the millennial kingdom. Spoke of in Revelation chapter 20. There's this thousand year reign of Christ on the earth. There is going to be all sorts of healing that will take place. There are no lame, no people that can't hear, no people that cannot see because the king is in their midst. And let me just tell you something else that's happening here. This is very symbolic of what Jesus does. His physical bringing about sight speaks to the fact that he wants to help spiritually people who are blinded to be able to see him for who he is. Someone once bluntly asked the blind and deaf Helen Keller said this, isn't it terrible to be blind? This was translated to her. And this is how she responded. Better to be blind and see with your heart than to to have two good eyes and see nothing. You see, these men saw with their heart and they saw who Jesus really is, the true son of David. Let me tell you something else, who he is. He is also the triumphant king of Israel. They're making their way to Jerusalem. So if you're in Jericho, man, this is kind of a low spot here. You're about 2,500 feet below sea. I mean, excuse me, uh, uh, 1,500 feet below sea level. You're going to travel up to Jerusalem, which is 2,500 feet above sea level. This is about a six to eight hour journey. It's mostly uphill. And it is it is 14 miles of winding and hills. And it's also very dangerous. A lot of robbers made their living on the, at this place. And so Jesus is making this trek with his disciples, the thousands of people. Now he's got two more. He's got these blind guys. They're just like, whoa, praise God. I can see this. Look at your clothes. You need to take a bath. I mean, they're, they're with him. I mean, I mean, everything they haven't seen perhaps ever. You know what I'm saying? Everything is new. You got, you just got to be a part of this picture. And they're making their trek. And so verse 21, when they approached Jerusalem, they had come to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives. And then Jesus is going to send his two disciples. Let me tell you, they make their trick. They come to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives is about 2,600 feet above sea level. It actually looks over Jerusalem. So you have, you have, okay, here's Jericho. 
Here you have the Mount of Olives. You've got the Kidron Valley. That's about a two and a half mile wide ridge where the Mount of Olives is at. Okay, you've got like Bethany, Bethphage up here. Okay, this is actually considered the utter outmost part of Jerusalem. You've got this huge valley, and then you've got Jerusalem. And right in Jerusalem, one quarter of Jerusalem is made up of the Temple Mount. And from the Mount of Olives, you can literally see all of Jerusalem, and you look directly upon the Temple Mount. And so this is where they're at. They have finally come to Jerusalem. Now, let me just tell you about Jerusalem. Jerusalem had started off as kind of like a little military fortress. Okay. By the time we get here now, Jerusalem is a top rate city. Okay. It has all sorts of water and it has the temple. This temple that Herod was still in construction of building was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was magnificent and beautiful. And they now are there. They're at the Mount of Olives. And Jesus... Jesus sends two of his disciples saying to them, I want you to go into the village opposite you and immediately you will find a donkey tied there and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord has need of them. And immediately he will send them. Now, this is pretty interesting. Why? Why a donkey? What what is Jesus doing? You know, Jesus has always stayed away from public attention. Remember, I don't want you to say anything about me. Yeah, I just healed you. Don't tell anybody. Okay, (laughs) can't help ourselves. He was always pulling away when the crowds wanted him to be Mr. Popularity. But now Jesus is saying, I want you to go and I want you to get this donkey for me. And I want you to get that full and I want you to bring them to me. Untie them, bring them to me. If they ask, hey, why are we doing this? Just say the Lord. The Lord has need of them. And why this donkey? Because it was prophesied about 500 years ago by a prophet by the name of Zechariah that your king is going to come riding on the foal of a donkey. And back, verse 4 says that this took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet. You see, the prophecies given in the Old Testament are systematically being fulfilled by Jesus to authenticate that indeed he is God's promised one. If you have any wonder, is this a supernatural book that God has given us, this Bible? The fulfillment of prophecy, prophecy should answer that question. Only God could orchestrate such details. And Jesus is systematically fulfilling them. Verse 5, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, gentle and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. In Zechariah 9, 9, that's what he's quoting here. It literally says this, and Mark, Matthew's giving kind of a partial quote, but listen to this prophecy. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion, shout in triumph. O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation. Do you hear that? Humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the full of a donkey. When Jesus rides on this donkey, what he's doing, he's identifying with David. Because prior to David's time and in David's time, if you were king, did you know what you rode? Limo? No. You rode. It was not a limousine. You rode a donkey. Okay. That was what kings rode. But later on, they said, you know, donkeys are, we need prancing horses. And so they kind of moved into horses. What a fitting symbol of Jesus. He says, I'm going to ride a donkey. Second of all, this reveals Jesus' inner spirit. He's not coming first and foremost as a warrior. He's coming in peace. He's coming on a donkey. And third, look at the power of Christ and his power over creation. You know what we call here in Texas, uh, when you try to ride an unbroken animal, we call it a rodeo. Okay, that's what we call it. 
And some of you have tried this, and you will learn that you just don't hop on an animal that's never been ridden before. After you're going for a serious ride, okay? And you're going to end up on your ears somewhere after you get thrown about 10 feet in the air. Jesus demonstrates his absolute control over all of his creation. Literally, he sits down on an animal that's never been ridden before, and they make their way. And so the disciples, they went and did just as Jesus instructed. They brought the donkey and the colt, and they laid their coats on them, and he sat on their coats. Did you see that? Whoa. Now, when they see this, people are familiar with prophetic uh, mysteries that are speaking of Messiah. They're understanding, whoa, 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 whoa. He's, he's coming. This one they're calling Messiah, he's, he's doing what Zechariah said 500 years ago. And so what they do, verse 8, most of the crowd spread their coats on the road and others were cutting branches from the trees and spreading them in the road. Now, let me just tell you what's going on here. What you would do if you were a victor, a king, some sort of prince, a conqueror, they would literally, they would put coats, carpet, they would put it on the road and you would walk on it. It was a sign of honor. Okay. Now, we would do things like that uh, today. Like, if, for instance, if you've gone to a wedding and you know that cute little girl and she's got that little basket and after some coaxing and a promise of candy and stuff, she finally makes her way down the aisle. You remember that? You know, and she's what is she doing? She's throwing the roses or, you know, I've seen it where they just do the dump, you know, and they're like, I mean, hey, you know, let's be efficient about it. Well, what they're doing is 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 still a follow through. We're honoring this woman that's coming down. We're honoring the bride or you've heard it and seen it. Maybe some of you have experienced it. You've got the red carpet treatment, right? They literally, they rolled out the red carpet or say, if someone's treating you really nice, you're like, whoa, you're giving me the red carpet treatment. That is all the same idea. It is to show great honor. And so they're doing that. And notice what he also, they're not only putting their coats and their cloaks down, but they're cutting branches from trees and they're spreading them on the road. These branches are from palm trees. And this is highly significant because the palm branch was kind of like the rallying symbol for the Jews. You found it all over the temple. Uh, when like they had serious military victories, they'd wave and raise palm branches. It's kind of like the United States flag. You see that flag? You see our Marines holding it and hoisting it? You see them taking back land or going and free, freeing people? And you see that flag come up, man? You get all choked up? You get tears in your eyes, right? Well, that's what would happen for the Jews when they saw these palm branches being raised. And they're literally, they're calling out that this Jesus is the king. And so they're they're doing that. And these palm branches were on their coins. I mean, this is highly symbolic what's taking place here. And the people are getting caught up with this because they're calling him Messiah, because look what they're shouting. Verse nine, the crowds are going ahead of them and those who followed them, they're shouting. They're not like, was that a son of David? No, none of that. We have to be quiet. No, they're no, they're literally shouting these things out. Look, Hosanna to the son of David. Do you know what the word Hosanna means? Oh, it's a nice little religious word. We sing it at church a lot. Okay. And it's an inscription of praise and it was used so in Jesus day. But it literally means this. Save now. Save now. Son of David. That is what they're saying. Hosanna. Save now. Son of David. And they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest. And what they're singing and crying out are from the Hallel Psalms. Okay, here's a little uh, uh, Hebrew for you. Psalms 113 through 118 were sung at all the three feasts, uh, including Passover. But specifically on Passover, they sang Psalms 113 through 118. They're called the Hallel Psalms. The word Hallel means praise in Hebrew. 
And they would sing this out because it would remind them of how God freed them and redeemed them and brought them out of the slavery of Egypt. And when they come to Psalm 118, they're waiting for a Messiah that is going to free them and deliver them. And that is what they're seeing. You see, they likely sang these as they were making their way to Jerusalem. When they celebrated the Passover dinner, they went through them. They did the first two before they ate, and then they did the rest after they ate. And this psalm specifically speaks of Messiah, the Deliverer, Redeemer. And so they are singing this. They're crying it out. Hosanna, son of David, save us now. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, some of the people, I'm sure, were just kind of caught up in the feverish pitch of all that was going on. But many of them probably were literally saying, this is the one. He is the one who is going to truly restore things. He is the king from the line of David. This is our Messiah. Hosanna, son of David. Now, when they entered Jerusalem, now let me just tell you what's going to take place here. Matthew is going to skip to day one. This is Sunday. This is taking place. Matthew, uh, he, he doesn't necessarily follow chronology because he's showing you what's related to what happens in Jerusalem. Mark makes it clear that the next day on Monday, what you're going to see take place beginning in about uh, verse 12 is going to take place. But let me let me just tell you what's happening. Jesus makes his way into Jerusalem and all the city was stirred saying, who is this? And the crowds were saying, this is the prophet Jesus from the net from Nazareth in Galilee. Jesus makes his way. People are like, well, it, you could safely say he's a prophet. But mind you, you're in occupied Jerusalem. OK, to call him the king is probably going to lead to some pretty serious action on the Romans at this point. And yet they had just called him as such as he was making his way. Now, here's something fascinating. Remember when we went through the book of Daniel in Daniel chapter nine and verses twenty five to twenty seven, there is a prophecy given. This prophecy says that Jesus, the Messiah, is going to make his entrance in Jerusalem 69 weeks of years from the time that the temple started building. Okay, and so for the decree for it to be rebuilt. Let me just give you a little background here. Exactly 483 years earlier, the Persian Artaxerxes, he gave the decree to rebuild the temple. Well, 483 years later, from that time that he gave that decree, Artaxerxes spoke. Jesus then makes his entrance. In fact, you can actually have the date. It's the 9th of Nisan, A.D. 30. Absolutely, completely on track. It should immediately just like, whoa, who are we dealing with that can fulfill prophecy at such great detail and even working through wicked kings like Artaxerxes? They're all of Jerusalem is being stirred. They're asking, who is this? He's the triumphant king of Israel. Now, this is pretty fascinating what's taking place here. But there's something else that you need to see about Jesus. He is going to show you that he is to be the transforming focus of our worship. So this is the next day. Mark makes it clear that the next day Jesus goes to Bethany, comes back next day, Monday. Jesus is going to enter the temple. Let me just kind of tell you what's going on here. At this point, people are all talking about one man who has come to the Passover, this Jesus. Many think it is now that he is going to clear house with the Romans. 
He has shied away from public appearances, but now he came riding in Jerusalem on a donkey. Only a king would do that. People are calling him the son of David. The guy has power. I mean, there's a lot of people that are still recalling that not so long ago, he raised a man named Lazarus from the dead, from Bethany, which is only two miles away from Jerusalem. The throngs have been following him. The, those guys that have been blind, I mean, they're like, he's the one, okay? We called him son of David, he healed us, okay? So all of a sudden, when they see Jesus making his way to the temple, they think that he's about ready to clean house of the Romans. You see, the Romans had now for decades completely just occupied and just had their boot on the neck of Jews. I mean, they just, the Israelites, they hated the Romans. And the Romans, man, they let them have their country, so to speak, but they couldn't have a king. They had a high priest, but the Romans picked him. And, and here's something. The Romans wanted to always make sure that the Jews know who was in control. So you know what they did? They built this huge fortress right on the corner of the Temple Mount. It's called the Fortress Antonia. And it was 14 stories tall, and it housed all these Roman soldiers. And they literally had at all times hundreds of Roman soldiers on guard. You could see their spears gleaming in the sun. And at Passover, when you got about 2 million people now just in, in this huge influx into the city, you would have all these Roman guards everywhere. And you always had the shadow of the fortress onto the temple. The Jews hated it. And it was just mindful of it. Hey, we're in control, and you are under our dominion. Well, now something rather surprising is going to take place. They think that Jesus is going to clear house with the Romans. Well, let me tell you what life looked like at the temple at this point. It would be a frenzy of activity. The temple is massive. It takes up one quarter of the whole city of Jerusalem. To give you a a scope on this, about 13 acres to this temple mount. It's massive. And it has this huge court called the Court of the Gentiles. And in this court... They had what had happened is they turned this place into a place where you could now buy goods needed for your sacrifice and you could exchange money. And so you had all these people that are buying and selling. Now, this court of the Gentiles, you see, if you were a Gentile and you had converted to Judaism, you believed that Yahweh was the one true God, then you could actually enter into this court. And you can see it, the court of the Gentiles, it's massive, it's huge. You could go no further, further because you weren't a pure Jew. And then they had a couple other courts. You had the court of the women. And then if you weren't a woman and you're a Jewish man, then you could go to the court of Israel. And if you were a priest, then you could go to the court of the priest. And so they had it all kind of broken up this way. Well, the Gentiles, you see, the Jewish people, they still kind of despise the Gentiles. Even Gentiles who become Jews or they adopted Judaism. And so what they did, and initially you could buy animals outside at the Mount of Olives and you could bring them for sacrifice. The scripture actually said that you're supposed to bring your own animal, but if you're traveling a long ways or that's rather inconvenient, as a sign of convenience, we're going to make these animals available to you right here. You can buy them. Okay. Well, what happened is, you know, they decided, you know, let's just move it into the temple itself. And so they did. They took over a big section of the court of the Gentiles. And they literally had these animals then for sale, and they had these money changers. Now, why did they have to have money changers? You see, all the coins of the Romans, they had Roman emperors on them. Well, the Roman emperors, they were idolaters. It was considered, they were considered blasphemers. So you can't have a coin with Caesar on it. That will not work in the temple. So you had to exchange your money. The exchange rate, you got, they made a 25% profit on that. And the animals, the animals... According to Alfred Erdersheim, he's a Jewish Christian scholar, they charge up to 10 times the going rate for those animals. And so let's say you're like, I'm not going to buy no animal there from these guys that are ripping me off. What a racket. I'll bring my own. 
Well, you brought your animal in, but the priests themselves would decide whether or not your animal was suitable, was without defect, and they would, uh, I'm sorry, there's something wrong with that hoof there. That'll, that'll never work. You're going to have to get one of ours. And that was it. And so you wanted to do this. Now, to give you scope on this, Josephus, a Jewish historian who wrote for the Romans in AD 66, he wrote that there were like 255,000 uh, sacrifices taking place at a Passover. So, whoa. I mean, this, you just got to see, there's just a flood of activity. There's people buying and selling. There's money. People, I'm sure, complaining. They, here they are. They're coming to worship God. They want to make this sacrifice. And they're like, oh, no. You know, I'm sure they were upset. And it's just total chaos. You see, the temple was to be a place where God was worshipped. Sacrifice was done. Priests were praying for the people. And it, they turned this thing into a circus. And so it literally became known as the Bazaar of Annas. Because do you know who ran all this and got all the profit from it? The high priest's family. And so they're running this huge racket at the temple. And this was such a far cry from what God had decreed the temple to be. And so when Jesus makes his way to the temple, the Jewish people are thinking, he's going to go and clear house of the Romans. Uh Uh-uh. Verse 12. Jesus entered the temple and he drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. You can just literally see Jesus. He makes his way. He gets into that court of Gentiles. You know what he does? He sees it and he just begins picking up tables and flipping them. The same hands that held babies and healed people that were blind. The same hand that would calm a sea. He's now picking up tables and he's flipping them. He's taking these money changers tables and he's just whoosh. He literally, he's driving out these people that had churned the worship of God into circus and a chaos. With every flip of the table, it's like he's saying, this isn't it. What you're doing, this is not worship. This was never intended. And literally, he he makes this statement here in verse 13. You can hear him crying it out. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. My place. He says, this is my place. And what he's doing, he's saying, I'm God. And the worship that's supposed to take place here is directed toward me. And you have completely missed it. In fact, he says it's like a robber's den. It's like you've turned this place to a cave where you're plotting evil deeds and you're hoarding all this money that doesn't even belong to you. He says, my house shall be a house of prayer. And when he quotes this from Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7, you know what Isaiah 56 is all about. Isaiah 56 is all about God's condemnation to unfaithful leaders in Israel. And he's saying, you have missed this completely. Now, You know, they probably thought that Jesus should be confronting the evil Romans, right? No. Jesus is going to confront sin wherever he finds it. And you know where he starts with? He always starts with his own people. Now, on the basis of this verse in verse 13, some some people think that you should never sell anything in a church. Okay? And they, they, they actually hold to that. But Jesus is not condemning the selling of animals or salt or oil or anything like that. What he's condemning is the cheating and the extortion and the fact that they had missed what worship is. And second of all, people call like churches, they call it like, you know, like this, this is a sanctuary. People say that. But you know what? That has to, that's not true. You know what the, the temple of God is? 
It's actually the temple resides in his people. You are the church. Not some building. You, the people of God. Well, this is amazing. Look at verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him. No, it, does it, it says it. it. They came to him in the temple and he healed them. The blind and the lame never came to the temple. They were forbidden. You could have never gotten in. But they heard of Jesus. When they see Jesus doing, it's like this influx of blind people. They're being led by the lame people. You just see this parade of people, people in dire need of a touch of the Savior's hand. And they come to the temple. And Jesus says, this is what I'm about. You're about some sort of phony religion. and It's all about you and all hysterics that you can create. I'm about people. I'm about people who need me. And so he, they come in and he heals them. Well, look at this. How do you think the guys running the racket are going to handle this? Look at verse 15. They go ballistic. When the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he had done. Okay, wonderful. Addressing sin issues and healing people. And the children who were shouting in the temple. That word children, speaking of kids about 12 years old, these would be boys probably going through their bar mitzvah. And look what they're saying. Hosanna to the son of David. They're, they're saying the exact same thing. Save us, O son of David. They're quoting from the exact same Psalm 118, verse 26. How did they respond? Instead of going, wait, you're probably right. We have missed it. They became indignant. He has the idea of fury and wrath. And Jesus said to, them, and he, and said to him, do you hear what these children are saying. They said, what do you, do you hear these people are calling you the Messiah, the king? What are you doing? You better tell them to knock it off. And, and Jesus said to them, yes, you know, I happen to hear this. And have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise for yourself. Now, what Jesus is doing here is a classic rabbinic technique. And what you would do is you would quote part of a verse and they would instantly know what followed. For instance, if I said, you know, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in what? Oh, yeah, 1492, right? You got that right on the history test, remember? Yes, you were smart. You, you see, well, that's what Jesus is doing. He's quoting part of the psalm, part of Psalm 8-2. But let me tell you what the psalm says. Psalm 8-2, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength. But you know what the rest of the psalm says? Because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. And they immediately filled that in. He's saying, I am coming to you as the king. I am the Lord of this temple. And even children will praise me. But I am doing this because you are my adversaries. And the fact that you are indignant to me shows that you are my enemies, that you actually hate me. Well, from there, verse 17, he left them and went out to the city of Bethany and spent the night there. Pretty interesting when Jesus comes to the city. Let me ask you. Jesus. We kind of think that he's going to address the evil people in the world, right? The great enemies of God. Let me tell you where Jesus is always starting. He always starts with the house of God. First Peter chapter 4, verse 7. He wants to address the sin in our heart. Yeah, there's going to be a day of judgment. A judgment for any who sin willfully and will not trust Jesus as God, Savior, and Lord. But do you know that he is very concerned about your heart? What's going on here? What do you think Jesus thinks about our 
lust for power, finding our security and our identity and our money. Um, the fact that we can be rather mean spirited or partial, that we're angry all the time, that we're bitter, that we're mean, that we live with just this incessant lust for immorality. We watch it on TV. People are pulling it up on computers. What do you think Jesus thinks about that in his people? Well, it's kind of like he takes those tables and he flips it. And every time he flips the table, it's like, you missed it. This is not it. See, I want my people to be a people of prayer who love me, who know me, who trust me. And if you reduce Christianity to something like going to a fish hatchery where you put a few coins in something, you twist it, out comes this little bag of food, and you just kind of throw it in a pond there. If that is all there is to your quote-unquote faith, you've missed it. See, God wants us fully captured by him. We love him. We're trusting him. We pray with earnest. We worship in sincerity. We sing in spirit and in truth. We're not going through motions. We are worshiping the one true God. And because we are related to Christ, we're united with him because he's our savior from our sin. He's the Lord of our life. His spirit resides within us. We have been resurrected with him. We live life differently. We join out with the chorus of praises. Hosanna. Save us. O son of David. And friends, see, we really live only when we see and worship Jesus, the king. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for such an amazing passage of scripture. For you in this passage, you allow those of us who at one point were spiritually blind to see. And at the same time, those who say they see miss who Jesus really is. And I pray that that would not be the case for anyone here. That all of us together would just be trusting Jesus, Lord of our life, King of creation, the eternal Son of David. And if there's someone here who's never trusted him, would they just pray with me and say, Lord, you know about my sin, wickedness, all that resides in my heart. I, I just turn from my sin and I trust Jesus and him alone for my salvation. And so, Lord, we do. We worship you. And it's our desire that our hearts would worship you in spirit and in truth, not just in this hour, but throughout the week. For Jesus' sake, and we pray in his name. Amen.